Hello everyone and welcome to another edition of Fascinating Nouns. We are still, as of 2015, the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. And I truly hope that this is not the year where that becomes highly contested by other trusted sources without, throughout the galaxy. Nevertheless, we arrive at this curious nexus point. And while here, we will explore the strange, the unusual, the offbeat, the bizarre, the intriguing, the interesting, the invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, the weird, the wild, the wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, and all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. I mean, I got a great show today. This is a topic that I've wanted to explore for a long time. We are going to talk with two Freakonomics alumni, Dr. James Dow and Dr. Glenn Whitman, who wrote a book called Economics of the Undead. Now, this isn't your grandmother's economics class. Freakonomics, the podcast, great show, and they basically show you all the underlying economic factors that that control our social interactions. The things that you don't even think exist, things that you don't even realize, decisions you don't even realize you're making, but you're trying to figure out how much time are you going to invest in something, and is it worth the rate of return coming back? Is you know wh what are the economic principles about going to college or walking your dog or having a dog even? So today, these two guys. They wrote a book, Economics of the Undead, and what this book does is it takes all of those economics 101 principles and applies them to the living dead. It takes our real-world situations, kind of like Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies, and, and it shows us the factors of bringing in the undead. What does that do? What does that mean? Well, here's a topic. For example, zombie apocalypse happens. There are just bands of survivors on Earth. Everyone's struggling to survive. You've got several guns, but you don't have a first aid kit, and your best friend is dying. How do you get this first aid kit? And what is it worth to you? you let's say you stumble across two people with, first, with two first aid kits. Can you trade them guns for the first aid kit? What does that look like? What does currency in the zombie apocalypse look like? You know, money's useless. Coins are useless. Gold, silver, doesn't matter. These things don't have any value. What is our currency? It is these types of questions we are going to ask right now. Jim, Glenn, thank you guys so much for being here today. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'm sitting here with Jim. Say hello so people can get your voice. Hi, this is Jim. And Glenn. This is Glenn. And you guys put together the most amazing economics book I think I've ever read. And when most people hear economics, they're going to glaze over immediately. So I want to catch them and hook them early. So this is a book where you basically took, how I would describe this book is it's an economics 101 class that you've put into the zombie world of zombies and vampires. Would you guys agree? I think that's about right. I think most of the chapters are pitched at a close to an Econ 101 level. Some of the chapters, I think, go a little beyond that. But yeah, we've tried to do it in a way that will be very accessible to people. Yeah, and what kind of surprised us is how many examples of economics there are in the zombie and vampire literature. So it's just it's very natural <laughs> for us to tie it into that. Yeah, it worked really well. Like I was reading it, and I'm a, kind of a zombie buff. And one thing I was really impressed by, besides you guys' credentials, obviously you guys are economics uh, experts, but the fact that you guys have so much pop culture knowledge about everything in the world, you know, both TV, films, books, everything. Well, it certainly helped that we had all the contributors to the book. We didn't write all of the chapters of the book. You know, we wrote a handful of chapters ourselves, and the yeah. rest we farmed out to uh, other academics, mostly economists, but some people from other disciplines as well, and they all brought their requisite knowledge as well. And then in the editing process, we would, of course, suggest additional references for them to use, and so it just infused the pop culture throughout the book. 
Yeah. Well, so this is a show. Per apparently, you've never listened to my show before. You always take full credit for someone else's work. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. That was very nice of you. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the, the, your guys. You guys have pretty cool backgrounds yourself. Um, Jim, you worked at the Federal Reserve, is that correct? That's right. So I was a staff economist at the Federal Reserve back in Washington, D.C. before coming out to Cal State Northridge, where I'm a professor of finance. Uh, so tell me a little bit about the Federal Reserve. This has been one of my weird fascinations. Um, was it, uh, we don't have to get into all the politics of it, but what was it kind of like? And can you explain the Federal Reserve? Because not everyone knows exactly what they are. And I okay. think it's pretty amazing. So the Federal Reserve is the central bank of the United States, and it's sort of a banker to the banks. And so it has a responsibility for controlling the money supply and now is you know, in the news and in politics because it had to intervene during the recent financial crisis and there's always questions of did it do the appropriate thing? As we go on, will there be inflation? Is the economy going to grow? And the Fed always has a hand in these things. Well, the one thing that I think is really interesting for most people to understand and most people don't is it is not part of the government. Like, it is as much a government as the Federal, Federal Express is part of the Postal Service. Well, actually, that, that really isn't true. Um, sometimes people talk, the Federal Reserve has a very complicated structure because the U.S. has historically sort of disliked concentrations of financial power. Mm. But it really is part of the government. It behaves in the same way that the several banks in other countries behave. And it was created, of course, by an act of Congress, and uh, many of the officers of the Federal Reserve are appointed directly by the president with uh, approval by right. Congress, I believe, as well. So it, it is ultimately, it is a creature of government, but it also has a, a large private component as well. So it's a weird kind of hybrid institution. Right. They wanted to disperse power across the country, and so that's why you have these regional Federal Reserve banks. But still, in terms of monetary policy and the decisions you hear about in the news, it's really part of government. No, that's true. And this could be a whole nother uh, podcast because I find this stuff really interesting. Uh, and Glenn, you worked on um, you worked on Fringe, is that right? You were right on Fringe, science expert for the show? Uh, that's right. I At some point, after a few years at Cal State Northridge, I embarked on a kind of second career. And so ever since then, I've been balancing uh, two lives, one as an economics professor and the other one as a TV writer. And uh, my first TV gig was at Fringe. Um, and the first year there, I, along with my then writing partner, uh, we sort of became the science experts on the show, uh, which is something that sort of happened accidentally. It's not why we were hired, but uh, we quickly fell into that role because we were the most, most academically minded and scientifically minded of the people uh, in the room. And so uh, whenever there was something that came up, uh, here's some crazy thing we want to have happen, how can we justify it? And we would be the guys there to say, well, there's actually some kind of a basis for that in real science. And, and so that's how that happened. And, uh, and we were there for several years. I didn't know you, so you have a science background? Uh, well, do you ca do you count economics as a we're science? Economists. <laughs> yeah, we're economists. We have opinions on everything. So. Yeah, exactly. But there, there's a certain academic frame of mind that I think is shared by whether you're talking about the natural sciences or the social sciences. Uh, but it also just happens that, you know, I'm a nerd and I have the standard nerd's interest in all things uh, scientific. Yeah. And uh, it happens that my father is a chemical engineer, and uh, <laughs> yeah. Robert, my writing partner, his father is a professor of uh, science education. And so it, we just came from that world. 
No, that's pretty cool because I mean the show has lots of high level physics, like experimental physics, quantum, like all the stuff yeah. that's not only barely in existence now, or barely an understanding of it now, but you know, stuff into the future. Uh, that's really cool that you were on that show. Uh, so let's talk about the book. Now, now economics, so I heard you guys on the show Freakonomics, which is, I love this show because the, what they do, which is so amazing to me, is they take economics models, economic models, I should say, and apply them to real world situations, and it works so well, and it's basically it describes human behavior in a way on a very quantitative level, you know, where you can really get facts and figures as to why people do things. Um, what, what would you guys say is uh, the economics, like philosophy of economics that you guys tried to, try to do? You know, this is uh, something that we wrestled with uh, quite a bit with the book because uh, people have different notions of what economics is. It's hard to even uh, come up with a single definition that everybody will agree on or that will capture all things that economists are up to. And so it, the book ended up being organized around uh, different sections, each of which is based on a different notion or common definition of economics. Wow. Uh, so sometimes people think of economics as the study of decision-making under conditions of scarcity. And we have a section where most of the articles uh, deal with that kind of decision-making. And then other people will look at economics from more of a macro level, and it's how it is that entire social outcomes uh, come to be as a result of many, many individual decisions, more of a macro perspective, and there's a section like that. Uh, it, but it can get incredibly broad. Uh, oh. You know, it, there's a definition of economics that is broad enough to include virtually everything that you can imagine, and it's kind of an imperialistic discipline in many ways. <laughs> uh, and so, so the, the approach you guys took is almost like Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies, or like a Max Brooks approach, where you basically treat all this supernatural stuff as if it's real and then explain it. Uh, which I think is great. So are you guys movie buffs? Are you pop culture you know, aficionados? Where did this come from? I think we both are. And I mean, I think our overlap is we're both huge fans of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh. And so we were talking about this as how we kind of got into the book is that we were watching one of the Buffy the Vampire Slayer episodes where the um, vampires and humans got together to set up a, a market for blood where they would come in and... Um, Oddly, it was the humans paying the vampires to suck on them. Well, and, spoiler and, alert, guys. Spoiler yeah. alert. <laughs> Very strange. Right. But it turned out that Buffy's then-boyfriend was uh, going to this place and paying right. for, the, for the thrill of having his blood sucked. So, and this, and this boiled your blood as economics professors. Right. Really. The this question doesn't is, make any sense. Right. Yeah. Who's going to pay who in this? Right? right. And then we realized, hey, this is an economics question. And so we said, <laughs> all right, well, let's think about this seriously. Yeah. yeah. And it turns out it can actually make sense. If it really is the case that humans have that much of a demand for thrill-seeking and getting their blood sucked, and if it's the case that the, uh, that the vampires are... Uh, unwilling enough to do that, then, you know, conceivably it would involve the humans paying the vampires. Although, a priori, I'd be inclined to think it's the other way around, that the vampires yeah. would, be, would be paying the humans. <laughs> and this is, I mean, this is, I don't want to, and I can't express this enough, this is a really well-researched, from a pop culture standpoint, really well-researched mm -hmm. book. And the examples you guys use, you know, put shed a light on this that you really, it really helps you understand not only what you're trying to accomplish with the undead aspect, but economics in general. I mean, it was it was a really good book. Uh, well, let's let's can we talk about some of the topics that are in it? Do you guys sure. let's you guys do mind? it. Uh, so you know, let's you're talking about the vampires in the blood, which does raise an interesting topic. So one of the first chapters is this idea of 
young girls wanting vampire boys. And, you know, you kind of take the economics of dating, which I remember hearing a story, uh, you know, probably on a Freakonomics, I don't know why I'm plugging them so much, but, you know, where they talked about online dating and how, you know, what are the economics of that, what are the possibilities, blah, blah, blah. But you guys apply it to vampire, vampire boys and, and uh, young girls, and it's so cool. Can you explain that a little bit? Sure. Well, where this came from, of course, is we were thinking what was missing from the book. We'd, we already had several chapters of the book written and others that we had accepted, but we were trying to figure out what were the holes. And what we realized is so much of the vampire literature these days is about the vampire as the romantic hero. And we have, uh, starting with Buffy, with Buffy and Angel, and then eventually Buffy and Spike. And then, of course, we have True Blood. So we have Sookie and Bill, and then Sookie and Eric, and then, of course, the Twilight phenomenon and Vampire Diaries and even others. Yeah. that I haven't read. And so this this notion of girls and women being interested in vampires as romantic mates, it felt like something that we had to address. And fortunately, <laughs> there actually is a branch of economics that's all about that. Uh, and it's called search theory or search matching theory. And in fact, uh, this branch of economics has uh, won some Nobel Prizes for the people involved in it. It was not specifically uh, about romantic matching, but about all forms of matching. And so the classic case is uh, people looking for jobs on a job market. Mm. And when you're looking for a job on a job market, it you know, people aren't just fungible. Not every worker is the same as every other worker, and not every employer is the same as every other employer. So what you're trying to do is find a match between workers and employers. And so that can involve a, a costly, time-consuming process of searching for each other and trying to find a good match. And the same thing could be said of people looking for homes. So you have people who have certain needs and what they're looking for in a home, and there are a certain set of homes that are out there that might better or worse satisfy people's preferences. And so it's once again a search process. And the very same uh, analysis, the very same basic abstract model has also been used to understand uh, mating markets and marriage markets because the fundamental uh, irreducible fact of the uh, of the search for a mate is that you're not just trying to find any old boy or any old girl. You're trying to find one who satisfies your preferences. And then to make it harder, you have to satisfy theirs. Right. <laughs> and so it's this two-sided market where both sides are searching for each other and sort of sorting through each other, uh, looking for a good match. And then the question is, what's the optimal strategy? If you're a human girl who's hoping to meet a vampire boy, uh, how long should you search? How long should you hold out? Uh, the example that, or the scenario that I lay out is, say, you're a girl and you've just met a vampire boy named Arnold, and he's, he's pretty good looking, you know, you like him, but he's a little bit on the broody side for your taste, and so do you stick with this vampire that I named Arnold, or do you hold out in the hope of finding your Edward? Well, <laughs> there are two ways that you could make a mistake. You could hold out for too long, and you could end up being a spinster out there on the market forever, never finding your match. But on the other hand, you could settle too quickly. And if you just held out a little bit longer, maybe you would have found your Edward. So there are two different errors, and they're in opposite directions. So the question is, how do you optimize? What's the right amount of time to wait? And it involves finding what we call a reservation level of romantic satisfaction, uh, which loosely means, loosely means uh, what is the lowest quality vampire that you would still be willing to stick with. So you'll, you'll stick with that guy or anybody better that you find who also accepts you and reject anybody below that level. 
Uh, and, and nicely, this fits abstractly, again, with how it works in those other markets as well. It, we just call it something different. It's called a reservation, excuse me, a reservation wage in the job market. Uh, it's the wage that you will accept that or anything above it and reject anything below it. So the analytics then turn out to be very similar. Uh, in, what's cool is in that chapter, you know, reserva was it reserva reserva reservation, reservation level, level of, of romantic satisfaction. <laughs> well, like that's like a term that we you now have put into there that people are, like excited about. Like I'm, I love that term, and it makes perfect sense. And you talk about standards versus trade-offs, a bilateral monopoly in a relationship. Um, you know, relationship a assets. I never even <laughs> thought of these things before. You're gonna take your relationship differently now, right? Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's, yeah, it's funny because like they're, you know, like a re relationship specific asset. Can you guys explain that? And can you explain a, um, a bilateral monopoly as it relates to a relationship? Right, so this is the second chapter of Vampire Boys and Human Girls. And it relates to when you've actually found somebody and settled down with them. Uh, what happens then? Well, it creates a, what's called a, a bilateral monopoly because it's a situation where each of you has to negotiate specifically with the other person. There's only one other person in the position of selling you what it is that you want once you settle down with that other person. This because, is a monogamous relationship. Obviously. In a monogamous right, relationship, yeah, yeah. to be sure. sure. We haven't covered all the possibilities. <laughs> right, yeah, right. Um, but if you think about it, you know, when you're searching, it's a very competitive market. There are lots of other boys out there. There are lots of other girls out there. You have a lot of different options. And so even though they're not all the same, it's, it's a competitive situation. But once you settle in with somebody, it becomes a situation where you make certain investments in each other. For instance, you might move in together. You might have children together. Uh, you form experiences together that are experiences that are only uh, exciting and interesting to you as long as you're together, but they kind of sour and curdle the moment that you break up. And so it's a situation where if you break up with each other, you're losing a lot of the value of those things that you've created together, which creates a strong incentive to continue negotiating with each other and potentially stay in that relationship with our, rather than breaking up. And of course, we know lots of couples like this, couples that have gotten together and, eh, you know, maybe idea, ideally these wouldn't have been the right match, but they've got so long invested together, they end up staying together. And so those things that they create together, such as children, uh, a shared living space, and so on, those are relationship-specific assets. They're assets that have value primarily in the context of a specific relationship. And that's another thing that exists in other contexts as well. If you go to work for somebody and you gain knowledge of their organization and knowledge of their database and you start integrating yourself into their organization in a way that creates value for both you and them, those are relationship assets as well. And they're among the reasons why it is that there's an incentive for people to stick with existing employment relationships as well. Uh, the danger, of course, is that you can take those things too seriously. You can end up committing the sunk cost fallacy, which is throwing good money after bad, thinking that somehow you're going to rescue uh, investments that you've already made, the money or time or effort that you've already spent. And that is a mistake. That's a fallacy because that stuff's gone and you're never getting it back. And that's true in both personal relationships, business relationships. Uh, but on the other hand, what is real and still relevant is what those investments have bought you. In other words, the things of continuing value, and those are your relationship-specific assets. And if those are valuable enough, they can provide a sufficient incentive to stay together, whether in a personal romantic relationship or, or elsewhere. And so you're saying that when, and then if you, when you break up, then the, the, the value of those assets falls to the floor then? 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, presumably you don't suddenly start hating your children if you break <laughs> up, but it is true that the, that children are assets that certainly become a lot more costly to maintain once yeah. you split up. Yeah. So suddenly the children who are always there in your house with you are children that you have to trek across town to even spend time with or that you have to be shuffling back and forth. Yeah. Uh, so it can be a lot more difficult to continue to maintain those, maintain those assets. So they, they're very valuable to you, but the net value can certainly drop some, sure. which is a terrible way of putting it, it sounds like. But I think we all know that it's true. We all know that you, know, you continue to love your children just as much, but they become a lot more difficult and costly to maintain after a divorce. Yeah. Um, likewise for an apartment, right? If you're going to move, if you move out, you've moved in together, you've decorated the place. Now you split up and you're going to move out and go somewhere else. That means all of that's lost and you got to pack up and move and decorate a whole new place, find a whole new place. So yeah, those, uh, the value of those investments go, either goes down to zero or in some cases doesn't go to zero, but has to drop some. Right. And then these are the kind of like real world examples that are so amazing to me because the economics theory, the economic theory does work and it explains it in a way that is understandable to a layman like myself. One of the things that was funny about writing those chapters, of course, is that uh, for a lot of people, the connection just between economics and romance is a weird one enough. But then I had to bring in together economics and romance and also vampires. <laughs> and, uh, and so it was constantly looking for the ways in which those dynamics of a relationship play out in the context of a cross the grave relationship. Cross the grave relationship. Th that's a that's a term I'm hoping will take off. <laughs> if you can advertise that yeah, one for us, that's either we've got same sex marriage, same sex relationships. Now we're going to talk about cross the grave relationships. Cross the grave relationship. You got it, man. I'll do whatever you guys want. Um, right, let's move on to the zombie apocalypse. Now this is something that I can maybe go toe to toe with you guys on uh, right. because I've thought about this a lot. So who's the zombie expert? Do you guys okay? Think? Between us, him. Jimmy yeah. Jam. <laughs> that's All right. right. Uh, so. Here's what's kind of cool about the zombie apocalypse is everyone, especially because zombies are really popular now, everyone has thought to themselves, I could survive a zombie apocalypse. It's really easy. I, I don't think, so first off, I don't think the numbers will, um, will support anyone surviving the zombie apocalypse, <laughs> number one. But number two, let's say that you do and you end up like someone on The Walking Dead or and you're in a small little group trying to survive. What are the economics of that situation? Because in, you know, in, in this particular part of the book, you talk about like the, the value of things is now has to be completely recalibrated. You know, money is not money anymore. Um, you know, how useful something is becomes, you know, uh, becomes what its value, intrinsic value. Explain right. this. Let's break so this down. So where I started with is that when a lot of people think about packing for the zombie apocalypse, they think about, okay, what do I need to survive the two weeks or three weeks? Uh, until the authorities come. I be able to kill some zombies and have enough food and things like that. But the reality is, when the zombies come, uh, it's going to completely destroy the economy. Reality uh, used usually, that term used Well, <laughs> you know, yeah, <laughs> at least uh, Yeah, 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 the reality we're talking about. Yeah. And, but the reason is, and you can sort of see it in the book World War Z and not the movie, is that the economy is a web of interconnected relationships. And so, all the things that we buy and the transactions we do are connecting people, connected uh, through people all across the world. And once you've got zombies there, they're gonna destroy all those connections. And so you have to ask, what is the world I'm going to live in look like? And it won't be the modern world. And in fact, what I think it would look like is something much closer to the 1700s, where everything you have is what you can do yourself, or more importantly, what you can trade for, but maybe in a horse's ride away. And so you're going to see a lot less specialization, a lot less industrialization, and it'll be a simple world. 
So the question is, what would you want to bring? Knowing that the zombies are going to come, you're going to end up in that world, what do you pack? And so then it's a question of what will be valuable in that world? And that's an economics question. And so what I do in the chapter is explore that and look at some of the implications. For example, one thing that's probably going to be really valuable after you're attacked by zombies is alcohol. And we know there's <laughs> going to be a market for that. And so what do you want to, how do you take advantage of that? And one thing to do might be, you know, bring bottles of scotch, but that's probably not very good because it's really heavy to carry around and that's a constraint. You could bring, you know, methods of making alcohol, but you even want to think about that. What do you want to bring with you? You don't want to bring the things that are cheap. Water is likely to be cheap. Fruit to ferment is likely to be cheap. So don't bring that. Bring things that are probably like to have a high value then. And so it could be parts to make a still that you might think are scarce. But probably more important is knowledge, what economists call human capital. That is, you want to bring the knowledge of how to make alcohol, how to make a still, and why? Because it's valuable, but it's also light. And so, you know, it, it doesn't have a big, what economists call an opportunity cost, right? So everything you're carrying with you when, when you're preparing means you have to leave something out. And since knowledge is really light, you hold it in your brain, you don't have to, you know, leave out other things. Yeah. One of the things that I really loved about uh, Jim's chapter on this subject is the progression because it goes from thinking, okay, you want to bring physical goods. Mm. You think you want to bring physical mm. goods like guns and ammo and, and alcohol, right? And then it progresses to say, well, maybe what you want to bring is capital goods, the stuff that you will use to make stuff, mm. such as a still, such as a means of making bullets. Mm. And then it progresses to the next step. So, well, maybe you don't want to even bring that. Maybe what you want to bring is human capital, the knowledge of how to bring a still, uh, uh, of how to make a still, or the knowledge of how to manufacture bullets. Yeah. So it, it, it's a nice little progression of uh, toward more and more abstract types of goods. It's like miniaturization. You go from you know the big things into the small things, which are the thoughts. Uh, you know, I would I don't know that water would be cheap in the zombie apocalypse. Depends if you. I guess there it does depend on how you think you know the zombies are. Um, it is disease, right? So if it's yeah. something that's in the water that's making the water bad for you, then yeah, purification starts to matter. Yeah. And so bringing the things how to purify the water might matter. But so it, I think we could boil the water. Right. I'm, I'm feeling right. like boiling water is going to be possible for us. If you had a zombie that was taking a bath in water and you got that water and you boiled it, would you be okay well, drinking it? I'm not it? drinking that water. Yeah, there you to go. be sure. <laughs> to be sure. But so I guess you're imagining a world where there are so many zombie corpses lying around that they are just clogging up the rivers and streams <laughs> every everywhere you go. So here's another lake. Oh damn it! There are, <laughs> right. there are all these dead zombies floating in it. But even so, well, first of all, even one dead zombie would spoil it for me. There have to be clogging it. But number two, there's no running water. The running water stops. Right. No, no. But the other thing is, there's a whole lot less people. Now, you know, yeah. the reality is, you know, where you are is going to affect how this turns out. Mm. And so, you know, I live in a fairly dense part of Los Angeles. The reality is I'm going to be eaten by zombies or killed by dysentery or one of those things. <laughs> because yeah. we bring, we, we have to pipe in all of our water anyway. We right, don't right. naturally have a lot right. of water here in right. the Los right. Angeles basin. Yeah. But if you're, you know, you're out in the woods or farther away and chances are these are the people who are going to survive. Well, yeah, it's probably... Um, probably going to be okay, at least on that dimension. And there's a certain correlation to the argument. That is, if there's not enough water to make alcohol, there's probably not enough water to drink. And so you're going to die anyway. Right. And so, <laughs> you know, yeah. you, plan for the, you know the, you plan for the circumstances where you have a chance to live. 
Yeah, no, that's yeah. Because if you don't, yeah, what's the point of planning? Uh, so speaking of water, this is a concept that I learned in your book, which changed the way I've been thinking since. And you talk about diamonds versus water and the value of each in our modern world. And basically, to sum it up, uh, that water is cheap but is necessary for life. Diamonds are completely frivolous and cost thousands of dollars. Why is that? Right, and that's a classic problem um, from Adam Smith's time. He was uh, one of the classical economists back in the 1700s. And he pointed out exactly that. Diamonds seem frivolous, but they're expensive. Water is cheap, but necessary for life. How can that possibly be? It makes no sense. And the answer turns out to be the value of something is really determined by the value of what we call at the margin. And so if you think about that first glass of water, when you have no water and you're just dying of thirst, that has a huge value to you. Mm. The second glass, well, that's nice. The third glass, after you've had enough water and you're taking showers and you're doing everything, water isn't that important anymore. And in markets, the price of a good, what it sells for, is dependent on that last use. And so the price of water is driven by that marginal or last use, you know, taking a shower, washing the dishes, which isn't very valuable. Diamonds, on the other hand, are very scarce. And so that marginal use of, you know, giving your girlfriend an engagement ring is pretty valuable. And so they'll sell for a high price. Yeah, and the other thing that's kind of interesting about that is with that same kind of mindset, there's another scenario that you guys bring up in that if, you, if I have two guns and you guys have two first aid kits, right? The first gun is worth a lot to me. The second gun, not as much. Same thing with the first aid kits, you know, for well, you know, one, whatever. But when you trade, and maybe we're jumping ahead a little bit, right. but when you, if I trade my second gun for your second first aid kit, your first aid kit becomes my first first aid kit, which has exactly. a very high value. Exactly. Absolutely. What's great about th uh, that, that nice little example is it helps to demonstrate how it is that you can have the same amount of physical goods, two first aid kits, two guns, but through dis different distribution of those goods brought about by trade, you can actually increase people's total value or total wealth. Mm. Both people end up better. If you have two people, one of them with two guns, one of them with two uh, first aid kits, they swap one for one, both of them end up better off than they were before, even though we have the same amount of physical goods, which helps to dismiss one of the myths that people tend to have about economics, that uh, the value of things is simply the things themselves. Mm, yeah. Um, so let's, let's, let's continue this, this discussion a little bit. What do you guys think, there's a, I think there's a chapter you guys talk about currency and what makes a good currency. What do you think would be a good currency, a good trading, like, uh, well, I'll let you guys talk about how, how things, a, tr a medium, like a secondary medium holds value. Uh, but what do you think would be a good currency in, in the zombie apocalypse? Well, you, I, probably a good example to go back to is uh, when we've seen alternate currencies form. So a classic example is in the POW camps in World War II. So again, you have an economy going on where the prisoners are trading things between them, but they didn't have money to trade. So what ended up being used for money was cigarettes. So everyone got you know, cigarettes uh, who were prisoners there, and they could exchange them for other goods. 
Sometimes you would even hold cigarettes not because you wanted to smoke them, but later you'd want to buy something else. So even if you were not a smoker, you would want to be collecting cigarettes because of the fact that you knew somebody else would accept them, which is, of course, the key feature of money. Money doesn't have any value at all, per se, These, at least the kind of money that we use now. Uh, it's just paper. And yet we accept it precisely because we believe that other people are going to accept it. Right. And so what you're looking for and why cigarettes were good is something that's divisible, right? So in a sense, you can make change mm -hmm. and something that's durable so that um, you can cart it around and something that isn't too big or heavy in this case. And cigarettes fit that. Um, the other thing you need is something that's sort of the right level of value mm -hmm. um, in a sense that you don't want one thing being really, really expensive, so expensive that you can't buy small things, which kind of ties into that divisibility issue. So one thing might be bullets, right? They tend to be small. Um, while they have a use like cigarettes, maybe you'd, expect, uh, you'd accept some bullets knowing that you could exchange it for something else. You can divide them up. They're durable. They kind of fit that model. One problem, of course, is that there are many different kinds of bullets, and so yeah. they're not perfectly interchangeable. So that creates you, right. fungibility is another nice right. thing for money to have. But nevertheless, we're, we're looking at a world of imperfect right. alternatives, and so it might turn out that uh, bullets are it. And it could also be batteries. Right. Um, it could. And that was a real problem with money before. A lot of you know we're now used to sort of dollars and everything is the same. But a lot you know you go back three four hundred years ago, different kinds of coins would circulate simultaneously. So you've got a coin issued by one country and a coin issued by another country, and something silver and something's gold, and you had different exchange rates between that. And so you'd probably have the same thing with bullets too. It's sort of an inefficiency, but sometimes it can be hard to avoid. Currency exchange yeah. for bullets. Mm. <laughs> well, you know, I don't. This is my argument against bullets: is that I think with cigarettes, you've got people who some people would smoke them, some people wouldn't. Mm. Everyone's using bullets, and and the amount of bullets because cigarettes, I think, are easier to make than a bullet would be. Eventually, the economy would run out. Right. Mm. I mean, I think that is a good point because as you, you you the number of bullets fall, right, then the price of everything is going to go. Um, Hyperinflation. Uh, yeah. Right, and there's a, I think... Well, actually, the other way around. In this case, the amount of money is falling. Yeah, so right. deflation. Deflation, oh, right. yes, yes. I, I mean, the, the cigarettes are a nice example, you know, because it's not just happened in POW camps, but also in prisons, as we know. But they tend to work best in a circumstance where at least a lot of people will ultimately be able to use them. So if you mm. find that you're not able to trade them for something else, you can at least smoke them. Right. Uh, <laughs> but then the question is, uh, what is like that now? Well, we've got a lot fewer smokers now than we did 20 years ago, and certainly not as many as we had, mm. had, had in the POW camps. Mm. And so it's, it's possible that there just wouldn't be enough cigarettes yeah. to go around to be usable as a medium of exchange. I think it's entirely possible that this is one of those things where uh, you, you cannot predict it in advance. It's one of those things that will emerge and you might be surprised to learn yeah. what it is that ends up being a currency. I, you know, who knows? It could be that we end up going back to the gold standard. Um, certainly that's happened multiple times through history is that people have ultimately relied on gold as a medium of exchange because it has all those characteristics of being having some intrinsic value, being very divisible, um, being of fairly uniform value, although not 100% because there are different uh, carat levels. Um, so the point is that we might end up going back to that or it might be something that we just can't even foresee and we're surprised by. Yeah. Well, the other cool thing about when you talk about the zombie apocalypse and you start, you know, making these predictions, the thing, and you made this point earlier, Jim, is that 
you know, you're kind of blasted, not necessarily back to the Stone Age, but the 1700s. I think that that's, you know, a really good prediction. And I think the thing that a lot of people, that it's, you know, 400 years away from our minds right now, is why have a currency at all? And this kind of brought it back into my head. It's because you have to be on a trading system at some point. And I think you guys make a point like, oh, I can trade a, a horse for a goat. Well, someone's, someone's not making, you know, someone's not getting their full value of their items in that particular trade. And so the currency is kind of like, it is the, what holds value temporarily. Yes. Right? Yeah, it, the uh, double coincidence of wants is the term that economists use to refer to this. <laughs> so the idea Lovely, is sir. that it, it, if we're, you're in a barter system yeah. and you're, you're trying to get some ammo and all you have is a first aid kit, but the other person already has a first aid kit and they don't need one, then you're hosed, right? right yeah. So what are you going to do? And they say, well, what I really want is a chicken. Say, okay, so I'm going to have to go out there and find somebody who's willing to accept my first aid kit and, and give me a chicken and then take my chicken back to the guy who has the, uh, the ammo and offer it to him, but maybe he doesn't want it anymore. And so it ends up being just an incredibly cumbersome system. Barter just does not work very well for that reason because it requires this double coincidence of wants. And money solves that problem. It makes it so that you don't both have to want what the other person, you don't both want to want what the other person has and have what the other person wants. At the same time. Yeah. Well, it's kind of interesting, not, you know, not to bring it to sports, but this is what's kind of cool when you see, like, the trade deadline just ended for the NBA. You have, you know, these five-person trades because one, one team wants one player, but they don't have anything, they don't have a player that that person wants because you can't really, you can trade money, but you can't, you have to really trade individual human capital because you want a player that does certain things. So you have right. these five-person trades where I trade this person here, I get this person, then I can trade to him, get this right. person who what you ultimately want. You know, it's kind of that, it's kind of like the 1700s trading in a way. Right. I'm not uh, too familiar with the way that that market oh, works. Oh, this is an but, exact metaphor. But, <laughs> but, but I believe the reason why it ends up being so similar is because of salary caps, right? Mm. So if you wanted to give somebody a player plus some money in order to make it worth their while to give up their better player. The problem is, is if you're giving them some money that might cause them to just bump up against their salary cap. And so that's not uh, so good, right? And so that's why you have to end up bundling players together to overcome well, that problem. There is that, but it doesn't actually have to work that way. If you look at actually the soccer market internationally, you don't trade players generally, you buy players. And so they use the monetary system where if you want somebody, you'll go and buy them. How do you get the money to buy that player? Well, possibly by selling another of your players, but it could be to a third team. So again, you avoid that double coincidence of wants. Oh, that's, I didn't know that, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. um, well, let's, let's talk about, since we're talking about money, let's talk about vampire wealth, which is another cool thing you guys bring up. And essentially, the argument that it seems like you make is that vampires, since they live forever, you know, given any l long length of time, you will become a gazillionaire essentially, right? Right. So that's, that was the question is, you know, you look at vampire fiction these days, and not only are women in love with vampires, but they're in love with rich vampires. And so how did the vampires get so rich? And of course, the obvious thing is if you live a long time, well, that means gives you a lot of years to invest and through compounding, and suddenly you, you know, you'll be rich at the end of 100 years. And so that's right to some extent, and I started there, but then I think you want to push that a little bit farther and you know, see what the implications for investing are. So one thing I talked about, for example, is if you wanted to think about how rich you're going to be, you have to figure out what return do I expect to get. And so people have studied this. They've gone back and say, let's say you invested in history for a long time. What return would you get annually? And some people have done some really long-term studies saying, 
oh, if you invested for around 100 years, what return would you have earned? And say 6% or something. And That's 6% per, per year. year. Right. So 6% per year. Which and adds up to a lot over 100 years. Right. That's right. that whole good side of it. It's a little trickier, though, than that. And I use sort of a vampire example to think about it. So imagine you are a Russian vampire in the 1850s, and you have exactly that plan. I'm going to put aside some money and investments. I'm going to get my coffin and sleep for 50, 60 years, and I wake up, and I'm going to be fantastically rich. Uh, the problem is that vampire would have woken up in the Russian Revolution to find all his money taken <laughs> away. Right. And that problem actually has a name in finance, and it's called survivorship bias. That is, if you're trying to measure what return you get, you tend to look at only investments that work out, right? Because Russia had to be excluded from that study because you didn't have 100 years of investing history. Mm -hmm. And so it's a problem that shows up in a lot of different measures of investment returns when you only include the winners and you don't include the losers. Mm. Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's this... Uh it's this kind of fun idea that, well, because the other thing that you kind of have to assume is that you have excess to invest. And I know lots of people who they just they love living by the seat of their pants, and they don't have anything ex, you know, anything extra. And if they live for a thousand years, they wouldn't be millionaires. Right. You know what I mean? Right. So this strategy, if it's going to work at all, and he, uh, Jim's already pointed out one problem with it, but if it's going to work at all, it also requires the vampire to be able to withhold on spending all of that money that they're right. making by, for instance, being asleep. But if they're going to be awake for all of those years, then they're going to be wanting to buy themselves stuff. So that means that they're going to be consuming some of the uh, the capital that they would like to be investing. Right. Well, that's going to reduce your effective rate of return because every year you're basically taxing a little bit to support your current lifestyle. And so that's another reason why we wouldn't necessarily expect all vampires to be rich. Uh, yeah, I mean, because I, I, I wouldn't, but even, you know, the other fact you have to consider is that even if you went in for 50 years, if you just put it into a bank or something, there's been lots of different, you know, not, e not even with a revolution, but any kind of major catastrophe in finance, it's so that the economic system can be tenuous in certain cities. Like even, you know, the, the euro appears and all the other money goes away. You know, if you have francs, I mean, are francs still worth anything now? Let's say you were yeah. a vampire and woke up and you've got 10 million francs. What do you do with that? <laughs> well, hopefully it would have been converted to euros when they changed yeah, it over. You need a good financial manager exactly, to handle things right. in your absence. That's true. All right. Yeah. Uh, that's true. But, but that's, a version of that is, is, again, the survivorship bias. Mm -hmm. It's the fact that there are all kinds of assets that you could invest in that turn out to be worth nothing by the time that you finally wake up. And so if you want to, you'd have to diversify your, your portfolio by investing in a whole lot of different countries, for instance, just in case any of these countries are going to fail. Yeah. But what that means is that your average rate of return might not be as great as you were hoping because included in there are not just a bunch of winners, you know, United States and Western Europe and so forth, but a bunch of losers like Cuba and, you know, communist China and so forth. Yeah, a lot of the turds in there. Um, well, so let's talk about a market we can probably, that's totally different but very similar, and that's the market we kind of teased earlier, blood for vampires. Now, you guys were saying that how, in, in I think it's Buffy, humans are paying the vampires. Um, but in, you, there's a chapter in the book about vampires paying humans, and that, you know, you make a good point that blood's a renewable resource. 
um, and that if it's legal, you can, it's almost like the, the drug argument. Like if we make buying blood legal, it reduces violence against humans by vampires. And uh, Tell me a little bit about that. What was your thinking behind that? Right. Well, that, that was a chapter contributed by Enrique Guerra Pujol. And, uh, you know, the concept was essentially what you're saying. He, he was essentially arguing that a lot of the violence that we observe uh, between humans and vampires is driven by the fact that vampires have uh, no legal and voluntary means of acquiring blood. <laughs> and, and so they, just as in blood markets or, sorry, just as in drug markets or prostitution markets or uh, the U.S. during prohibition, uh, you end up getting a great deal of violence as they take w by force what they're effectively uh, barred from being able to take legally. And that naturally generates a great deal of violence. Yeah, well, and and if you you know if you cut that out, because you're talking about black markets and how they kind of you know creep up in the world, and if we made it legal, you know, it essentially would disappear in a way. Yeah, it, violence. At least, at least partially. I mean, I, there are still people, I suppose, who knock over a liquor store, right? So that happens, but we don't think of the alcohol market now that we <laughs> now that yeah, it's been right, legal right. since right. 1932. We don't right. think of the alcohol market as one that is plagued by violence. Uh, in general, you know, there's there's no reason for you to do that. It's a cheap enough resource that you can uh, you can buy it instead of resorting to violence to get it. So if we put that in the vampire context, we don't have to say that no vampire would ever take it by force. I'm sure that there are some vampires who just really enjoy uh, the the struggle. Uh, that the victim puts up. But there might certainly be other vampires who either don't enjoy it or who enjoy it, but not enough to justify the chance of getting staked in the night as a result of it. And so they'd be happy to take advantage of a legal and voluntary alternative. <laughs> you know, the other part of that chapter I really like is you guys, there's a little bit of out-of-the-box thinking here. Um, and you talk about how other sub-markets will emerge. I never even thought about this, but you know, synthetic blood or rare blood or alcohol-infused blood. <laughs> I never even thought about that. Or drug-infused blood, I guess you could also take it another step. What is one of the great things about markets? I mean, if you go back to the Soviet system, and since it was all centrally planned, they wanted to keep it as simple as possible. And so there wasn't really much in the way of variety of goods because they didn't have to keep people happy. But if you have a more market-oriented system, firms are going to find products that people want, and yeah. they'll think of new things, and yeah. whether it's alcohol-infused blood or... Yeah, in the Soviet system, you want bread? Here, you got bread. What, you want, oh, you wanted rye bread. Oh, you wanted whole grain bread. You wanted seven grain bread. What? Those options were not available to them. They would wait hours and hours in line just to get plain old bread and whatever kind of bread was on offer. Yeah, so markets do create that incentive to, to diversify the product. Uh, what I also liked, and I, I believe this point ended up in, in the book, uh, maybe just in a footnote, is the idea that right now, if you're going to uh, give blood, if you're a, a donor, you can only give blood if you are healthy because you want it to be used for transfusions for say, sick people and you don't want them to get whatever sickness <laughs> right. you have, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, so for instance, if you have HIV, you're probably not going to be a blood donor. Um, but if vampires happen to have really good digestive systems that where that's, you know, it, we, we rarely see the sick vampire. Vampires, for whatever reason, are, are resistant to all of these human pathogens. Uh, then in that case, suddenly we may have a market for all of those people with, uh, who are potential donors but who can't donate their blood for, uh, for health purposes. Well, yeah, and, and, you know, that would bring up uh, the synthetic blood. 
Uh, now, I think synthetic blood is a really good idea, but it feels like the tofurkey of, of blood. <laughs> you know, because not everyone loves that. Yeah. I don't know that they'd be into it. Yeah, well, that's what the whole True, true Blood yeah, show yeah, is right. about. It's about the fact that, yes, we have the synthetic blood, but clearly there are still a lot of vampires out there going for the real thing. Right. Apparently it's not quite as good. I didn't quite get it. Another really cool idea. This, this book is full of cool ideas. You guys, there's an argument in the book about taxing the undead. And how do you, <laughs> and how do you figure out whether they're, basically you make the argument, are they pets or are they humans? Yes. And how would they be treated, property or taxpayer? Right. And so uh, the author of that chapter, Joe Mandarino, who's actually a lawyer, but with some training in economics, uh, he was he had this chapter in the book is about what he calls what was the term that he used? Non-sentient uh, entities, mm, yeah, yeah. meaning zombies. <laughs> in other words, uh, undead creatures that don't have brains right. uh, or don't have brains that function. Right. And and so essentially he argues that these would be most likely be treated much like pets, as you say, or as livestock, like horses yeah, or yeah. cows or whatever. And so then he applies some of the principles of the legal taxation of those things. And of course, what you want to do with uh, a tax system is you want to encourage productive uses of resources. But um, as any economist can tell you, almost all taxes generate uh, deadweight loss in the form of some transactions that don't take place as a result of uh, the tax. And so what that means is it's possible once we've, you know, we're in a world where, yes, we had zombies, but apparently not a zombie apocalypse. So the economy is still functioning and we're trying to use zombies as labor or as, <laughs> or better put, as capital. Right. Yeah. Um, the, the possibility is that certain types of taxation would cause us not to make the optimal use of zombies. To take a really simple example, if if every time that you cross state border uh, state border you're going to have some kind of a new tax that's going to be imposed with the sale across that border uh, then and if only in the next state is the best use of zombie which, which is in a uh, watchmaking factory uh, then in that case that zombie may never be sold and he ends up staying in his current state where he's only used for picking cotton or whatever yeah. uh, so if you want to make optimal use of the zombies you're also going to need the optimal uh, tax system yeah. Now, with the vampires, it would be a different story. Presumably vampires, they're sentient entities. They would probably be taxed more like humans are taxed, and so probably through an income tax of some variety. But that would raise some of the same issues, but that doesn't come up in the chapter. Well, one of the things that's kind of crazy, and it blows my mind, I'm going to try to get through it here. You guys have, feel free to correct me. The, it's, the, it's this tax loophole where if you die, your stuff, you know, your stuff gets passed on to your estate. But if you turn into a zombie, you technically die. But what if a cure for zombieism comes into play? Are you technically still legally dead? Can you resume your old identity? Uh, you know, how, what, are the, what, are the, what are the tax implications of coming back to life after legally being dead? Right. What are the rules on that? And of course, I'm not the tax lawyer. That chapter yeah, right. was written by the tax lawyer, so it's hard to say. But it means that you, if you think that there's a possibility of a cure, you need to worry about the possibility that uh, people might deliberately choose to become zombies and then get resurrected or whatever as a way of ta means of tax evasion. <laughs> right. That's great. Um, well, let's talk about uh, let's talk about one more thing uh, if we can. Now, this one is kind of um, 
Well, so there were there were a couple of like for as fun as this book is, there were a couple of disturbing parts of the book. <laughs> no, no, so for example, I would hope so. <laughs> well, no, no. For example, not to make it too dark, but even the whole idea of taxpayer, you know, zombies that harkens back to slavery and then the, and the arguments that they had around the Civil War of like right. what constitutes yeah. a person. And it's very you know very similar arguments were made you know back then by the South to keep plantation owners in absolutely and, and you sort of see this in the zombie films as well is that zombies yeah, yeah. are sort of moving more and more to being sentient beings and yeah. there is that question of where is that line um, in and, the movie Fido where zombies are bought and sold to be used in factories to make things some of them look pretty human there, yeah. and you'd really want to say, do they have rights too? You know, do you want to right. treat them as labor rather than capital? Right. right. Well, and interestingly, of course, the whole zombie literature, before the modern era where zombies were created by viruses or by industrial pollution or whatever, uh, the original zombies in movies like White Zombie back in the 19, was that 1940s, I want to say? Uh, it, you know, it comes from legends in, in Haiti, and it really was a metaphor for slavery. Uh, the people's fear was that you could be a slave all your life and then you die and you continue to be a slave even after death because a sorcerer raises uh -huh. you from the grave and continues to force you to work. Uh, so a absolutely, there are those connections. Um, but to be, I don't know if the word for it is serious here for a minute, but to be analytical here for a minute, yeah. I guess the question is, okay, are the zombies really mindless or aren't they? Mm -hmm. If they are genuinely mindless, then there's, there's a really good argument that we should be treating them in much the same manner as, as horses or cows or whatever. Uh, we certainly don't have a problem with the fact that when a person dies, they may choose to donate their organs mm. to allow other people to be used uh, or other people to use them. Um, so there, there is a good argument that uh, if they are genuinely brainless and therefore they genuinely don't have interests that we should be taking into account as a matter of humanity, then uh, the best use of them might be in the form of some form of um, livestock. Like a pack animal. Uh, yeah. Now, what re gets really difficult is the spectrum, right? So at one end of the spectrum, there's a completely mindless zombie who can't feel anything. At the other end of the spectrum, there's a fully sentient vampire capable of all of the usual human feelings and attitudes and, and pain and suffering and so on. The really difficult case is the case that is in between, mm -hmm. such as, and as Jim said, in warm bodies, where you have something that doesn't quite have the full complement of human uh, thinking, that doesn't, you know, have that full ability, and yet is not completely without feelings as well. Mm -hmm. And how much should we pay attention to that? And of course, that plays out in the animal rights debate as well. Yeah. Yeah, that, and that's, you know, this is, that's the one dark thing. And then the other dark thing that I wanted to bring up is you talk about zombies as an invasive species. And everything, <laughs> and I, you, I'm sure you guys did this on purpose, but every category that, that constitutes an invasive species can be applied to the human race in general. Uh, was disturbing for me because I've always considered human beings to be an invasive species. Uh, but let, let's talk about zombies as an invasive species. Um, how did the, you, the analytics of it are kind of like how quickly something grows, the competitive 
you know, equal, the competitive com competition in the environment to which they're growing and that kind of thing. How does economics play into that? Uh, well, that chapter was written by Michael O'Hara, mm. an economist uh, who specializes in natural resource economics. Mm. And, and so the analogy here is to things like the, uh, the cane toad in Australia, which quickly, it was a foreign species introduced to the continent and that quickly uh, bred and took over a lot of areas <laughs> such that you can drive down the road in Australia and hear pop, 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 pop beneath the uh, tires of your, your truck because there are so many of those toads. Or the wow. or the uh, the Asian carp, which is uh, breeding in American rivers, uh, kudzu in the American South. These are all examples of invasive species. And the economic question is, how hard should you fight to prevent them from coming in the first place? Because that takes resources. It is it takes an effort. Uh, it takes uh, money and time to be able to prevent those things from happening. Versus once they have invaded, how hard should you try to keep them under control? And what are the most uh, economical means of keeping them under control? And sometimes sort of the economic perspective might be a little bit different in the sense that you don't may not want to be eliminate all the zombies, but eliminate most of the zombies. And again, it's that cost of how, what does it cost to eliminate? Getting rid of that first zombie, that's probably pretty easy and cheap to do. Getting rid of that very last zombie, you get a hunter down to find him, it's probably expensive. And so you pick the, sort of the optimal number of zombies to have around. Yeah. Once we have a zombie population among us, complete eradication might not turn out to be the most optimal solution. It might end up making sense to allow there simply to be some level of zombies around us that we constantly have to fight off, but we would no, no more try to eliminate all of them than we would try to eliminate all car accidents. It's just a fact that if we're going to be driving on the roads, you know, we're going to get a certain level of uh, car accidents. We try to minimize them uh, when we have that capacity, but you're not willing to give up everything. We're not willing to give up all travel to get rid of uh, all car accidents. Um, it, what I think is fascinating about that chapter is the author ends up suggesting that it might turn out that zombies are in fact an economically valuable species. Uh, of course, we've talked about that previously in the form of the, using them as, as labor on farms and factories. Uh, but what he raises is the possibility that people may enjoy hunting zombies for sport, as indicated by all of the uh, video games that we have where that's the object. And, and this is not completely uh, unheard of with respect to other invasive species. For instance, we're encouraging the fishing of Asian carp as a way of reducing the Asian carp population. Um, there's a, a real problem with feral swine, feral pigs in a lot of states. And in some of those states, such as Texas, they started to encourage people to hunt the feral pigs as a way of keeping that population down. So maybe that would eventually happen with zombies as well. And if that's true, then you don't want to eliminate that zombie population all the way down to zero because some people may genuinely enjoy the uh, process of killing zombies. Well, that makes what I thought was dark even darker, Glenn. That's... <laughs> It's <laughs> pretty morbid conversation. Well, so guys, this is an incredible book. This is just a small little light through the window of what this book is capable of. It's so many cool things. Uh, you guys did a great job with this thing. Uh, anything you, you guys want to plug besides the book itself, tell you how to get the book, what you guys do on the side, anything? Promotion time, boys. Promotion time. No, we, we haven't got a sequel planned just yet. Right. If you, so. But if it sounds good to you, it's available on Amazon. And we've got a blog where you can read selections from the book. Yeah, econundead.com. And we can read selections. We also have a blog there where we occasionally post new Econ Undead news. And uh, that's it. Twitter, Facebook, anything like that? 
I'm on Twitter, at Glenn Whitman. I try not to be. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, all right, guys, thank you so much for being here. It's been an absolute pleasure. Now, if you love this subject and you love the types of things I have on the show and you want to be more up-to-date, more involved, go to the website, fascinatingnouns.com. At the bottom, you can link to all the social media sites. You can even sign up for a newsletter and learn about all the new things that come out as soon as they come out. That's why it's a newsletter. Everything that's new comes to use. You can also check out the Twitter, at Daniel J. Glenn, Pinterest, backslash Fascinating Noun. Lots of great pictures on everything that I've done, all the, new, all the guests that are highly pictorially associated, uh, if that's a phrase and or a word. And you can also check us out on Facebook, fast, back, Facebook, backslash Fascinating Nouns, all the easy stuff. So again, thank you for listening, and have a good night.